UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. I guess that sets this the tone, but like I they, I hope my internet doesn't go out. So we're recording. I'm in Pittsburgh. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I'm really honored to have on my guest I have on today. Um, he was on the Art Bell Show in 2013. He was on the Art Bell Show in 2015. And he, he might have been on back when Art did Coast to Coast. I'm not sure. But who I have with me is Lloyd Auerbach. He's a world-recognized paranormal expert and parapsychologist. Lloyd holds a master's degree in parapsychology. He spent 43 years investigating the paranormal for 40 years teaching courses on the subject. He's the director at the Office of Paranormal Investigations, president of the Forever Family Foundation, an adjunct professor at Atlantic University, and is on the board directors of Ryan Research Center, where he teaches online parapsychology courses through their education center. Currently, you can see him on episodes of The Unexplained and Surviving Death on Netflix, and his websites are facebook.com slash lloyd.arbach, ryanedu.org, um, and there, he has another one. He's a chocolatier as well. He's a professional chocolatier. His website for that is hauntedbychocolate.com and a new website, which is rainyandday.com. And his books are, he has a bunch of books. Um, I'm just going to read them off real fast and you guys can research them if you want. We're going to talk about a couple of them tonight. These books go about ESP hauntings and poltergeist, a parapsychologist handbook, ghost hunting, how to investigate the paranormal, hauntings and poltergeist, a ghost hunter's guide, Mind Over Matter, Psychic Dreaming, Reincarnation, Channeling, Possession, A Parapsychologist's Handbook, The Ghost Detective's Guide to Haunted San Francisco, ESP Wars East and West, and two new books, Near Death and Afterlife, focusing on, you know, afterlife subjects. And I want to give him a big warm welcome back to my show. Lloyd, thank you for coming back on. How are you? I'm doing good. And those last, I should mention, those last two books are novels that I co-authored with a couple of my buddies. They're paranormal mystery novels. That's interesting. Like, do you base a lot of truth, like the near death and the afterlife, that's what you're referring to. Do you, do you, uh, do you base a lot of your research in the, the truth that you find, like in your research? Yeah. So the, one of the main characters in that book, Jennifer Day, is actually based on me. Um, the, the backstory for those novels uh, written by Rich Hosek and Arnold Rodnick and myself goes back to the three of us collaborating on a TV pilot script, a movie script, TV movie script, and trying to sell a series back in the 90s. And we got caught up in the wrong time because of X-Files and of other things that were going on at the time. 
Um, the main character, like I said, Jennifer Day is a parapsychologist slash anthropologist. My background's in anthropology other than parapsychology. She's also a magician, which is one of my, we haven't made her a chocolatier yet. Um, maybe <laughs> point. But the, and the cases and phenomena that's in there, you know, there are some cases, some things that are directly based on cases I've had and others that inspire or have kind of taken off from, uh, in fact, an afterlife is one of my better cases that, that Rich and Arnold and I kind of extrapolated from that quite a bit, mainly Rich. Yeah. Is, is that where the website Rainy and Day comes from? Because Rainy and Day are the yeah. two investigators in the novels. That's correct. Rainy, R-A-N-E-Y-A-N-D-D-A-Y-E.com. That's correct. Yeah. And we have a third novel. That's awesome. We have a third novel planned for October called Farsight, which will involve remote viewing. Wow. Is it, is it based on like what, like what the Farsight remote viewers are doing? Like, or so, do you, yeah, do you so follow we're, them? We're going to be incorporating some of the kind of a, what's there from the U S government program and actually the remote viewing research in parapsychology, um, the book you mentioned before, ESP, East, ESP Wars East and West, which is co-authored by Ed May, uh, Victor Rubel, and Joe McMonagle, um, though that book is actually the history of the Stargate program. Um, and Ed was the program director from 19, late 1985 through the closure of the program in 95. Joe was the number one viewer with the program almost from the beginning. Ed was actually there I think from about 75, 76. And then Victor actually was our contact with the Russians uh, because that's the only book on the Stargate program that also talks about the Russian side of the remote viewing story as well. That's fascinating. What I wanted to ask you was, I, I guess we could start our conversation off here because I know you're a little bit skeptical and I think that's great because, you know, I started off my channel, my YouTube channel, I called it typical skeptic, but then you know, I just started interviewing everybody because like, I was just like, you know what, I'm a believer and I'm open-minded. You know, I might be a little bit skeptical, but I want this channel to be like that. I'm open-minded and I'll interview anybody kind of like Art Bell, right? But now the more that I, the more that I research, the more skeptical I'm becoming. But one thing that I haven't become skeptical about is psi research. But with that said, you know, I've had past life regressions done. And I was a little bit skeptical on them. I'm not going to lie. You know, yeah, because, you should be. yeah. I, I mean, it felt, some of it felt very real. Like I, you know, I got, I was taken like, for example, in, in two of the scenes, I was taken back to like what I would call a war scene. You know, like I was, I was, you know, I was shot in the chest twice in each, each regression, you know? And uh, one time I thought I was living my, my grandfather's life, which is really interesting. Like, you know, cause he was a POW in world war two but what happened was in, in those regressions, what made me think they were real was what, you know, when I got shot in the chest in the regression, my chest in this life, in this reality started to tense up. So I started to feel, it felt very real, but then there were parts of it that felt like I was wondering, I was like, was well, my mind just making this up? So like, what are your, I'll start off there. Like, what are your thoughts on the past life regressions and can we hold any credibility to them? Well, in our field, um, we don't look at past life regressions at all as evidence of reincarnation um, for a number of reasons. We focus on cases with children who remember previous lives because they don't have a ton of information in their heads. The problem with past life regression is hypnosis itself. Hypnosis is a cooperative effort. It's the hypnotist or hypnotherapist, and it's the, it's the person being hypnotized. 
And the person being hypnotized essentially is cooperating with the request or the instructions of the hypnotherapist. And part of that instruction, of course, is go back before your birth. Now, if you're cooperating, you're unconscious or even kind of you're just right below your conscious level is going to cooperate and provide a past life. Um, we see past life regression in the process of past life therapy, which uses regression to look at what what's the story but that you come up with as to why you have problems, why you have bad habits, why you, why you might have phobias and things like that, or even to deal with other kinds of relationship issues. And from that perspective, past life therapy with regression is actually super powerful because the therapist would use that regression story to help you work through those issues. But factually, those regressions don't necessarily, in fact, they rarely ever produce any verifiable information that you could not have known. And that is where we run into a problem of using it for evidence reincarnation. Your chest tensing up though, can just as easily have been a reaction to the experience in your mind of being shot. That doesn't mean you were actually you know, your chest was reacting to the experience, not to an actual memory of having them shot. Uh, it's hard to say. It's actually impossible for us to say whether that really was a past life. But I can tell you that, you know, when you hear about people who say that they were regressed and they were somebody in Atlantis, it's like, yeah, what do you want to do with that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, anyway, it's, uh, it's funny. Like, well, uh, here's what, one thing that gives credence to what you're saying. Like, you know, when I have falling dreams, when I'm dreaming, like, it, it, it feels like I'm falling, you know, and I don't know what that is. I, I can't figure out what that reality is, what well, the dream well, world yeah, is. And some people say that, you know, there's all this uh, folklore that if you hit the ground when you when you fall, you're going to die. Well, first of all, the only way we'd know that that happened is if a medium talked to you after you died, that you died because you dreamt that you fell and hit the ground. And then there are plenty of people, myself included, who's had dreams of falling into the ground. Um, although I tend to get up out of a Lloyd shaped hole from the ground. Cause I watched a lot of Roadrunner cartoons when I was a kid. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so what do you think we like? What, what, so, okay. So is that the only thing you go by is, uh, for reverence or reincarnation or is there other things? Well, we mainly, I mean, we really have to, if you're talking about reincarnation, we really have to eliminate any possible sorts of information that could have been stuck in your mind, you, whether you remember it or not. There's something called cryptomnesia, which Ian Stevenson was like the key investigator and researcher on this since 1960 until his death a few years ago. Um, cryptomnesia, you forget that you knew something. And when we're sitting, for example, you're in a crowded restaurant. Not that we're probably doing that that much still even to this day because of COVID, but you're in a crowded restaurant and there's a lot of people talking around you. And we're getting all that. You may think you're not hearing what they're saying word for word, but you are. It's just that your mind is attending to whoever you're speaking with or wherever you want to put your attention. And that's what you consciously remember. But all that sound, all that noise is going in. So let's say somebody's at the table behind you. You're not really paying attention, but they're talking about um, that they're, they're doing a paper on 13th century France. And in the south of France, whether they were wine growers and they're talking about agriculture and all that, and you don't hear any of that consciously. But now suddenly you're regressed and, and you're, you're years later and you talk about having been somebody in 13th century France and you were a farmer and all that. 
there's no way to eliminate, to, to track down where you got that information, whether it's from a reincarnation or whether it's from somebody's table behind you. So we can't eliminate things. And especially in today's world, we really can't eliminate stuff, even for kids. It's really hard to cut out all the sources of information because we're in information overload today. Most of it's not historical. Now, another interesting thing is that in most of the regressions, when someone bothers to check the stuff that's said, the facts that are re reported by the people under their regression, they find that that does not play out factually. That's interesting. Even, well, even in some of the broader, yeah, even in some of the broader descriptions, there's a lot of stuff that actually can be tracked back to movies and TV shows that people saw. Well, I, I, this makes me think of remote viewing because I know remote viewing isn't regression, but you're still doing it. You're still getting into like somewhat of a meditative state and using your mind. But I guess the difference with remote viewing is you're actually getting verifiable target. You're, you're, well, you're verifying. You're right. You know, remote viewing is, is worthless if you're not getting verification of information. Yeah, but you but we do get verification in remote viewing. That's why the government's used it, correct? Yeah, I, I mean the fact is that the government typically was using it because they they had a location or some in, some something some activity that was going on and they needed further information about that person, place or thing. Um, they needed to get gather more information. Now, some of it um, was not necessarily verifiable but seemed to play into the the actual was verified much much later. Let's say uh, it couldn't always be verified because the fact is that 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 information, the reason they asked for that information because they had no other channel of getting it. So it sometimes would take months before it would play out. <clears throat> the the various government agencies there were I think twenty Ed, Ed said there I think there were twenty one federal agencies that came to the remote viewing project, asking for information about various scenarios. And 17 of them kept coming back. So <clears throat> what that means is you had 17 federal agencies that were happy that at least some of the information was actionable and verified on the ground then or later on. So it can be verified. The biggest problem with any psychic input often is how much is verified and is it useful? And really, um, because a lot of times you get, let's say that you get, you have a jigsaw puzzle and you've put together a third of the jigsaw puzzle in around the outside and you have no idea what's in the center. That can be remote viewing or the remote viewing might get different parts of that. So anything with psychic ability sometimes gets piecemeal pieces, get pieces of the puzzle and putting that together, however, with other intelligence makes it really easy to use that intelligence. So if you can use remote viewing to get the missing pieces, that your other sources are providing or not providing, that's where we get into uh, an incredible power power um, process. And also, yeah, it makes me think of like psychics who do solve cold cases and they supposedly, you know, find missing people. Like, and some people have track records on this. Like, have you seen this? And and do you think that's like uh, real? I mean, well, you know, there's there's coming up with the correct suspect or the correct um, perpetrator, coming up with the right information, finding finding bodies. That's something that I know my late colleague, uh, Annette Martin, was good at that, doing that and finding missing people uh, from time to time, verifiably. Um, you know, the, the whole thing about psychics solving crimes, it's kind, it's a little difficult because yes, they might come up with the right person, but then the police, still, the law enforcement folks have to build a case and they can't use that as the main function of taking the case to the DA. 
So what they yeah. have to do, what the, the best psychics have said, here's who's who did it. Here's where you'll find the evidence. Here's where you need to focus to get the physical evidence to actually prove this out. That helps the police actually put things together. And quite often, I know that uh, except in the missing person type situations, and I know Annette Martin and a couple of the others I knew, they actually helped focus the police in certain areas. The police already had, law enforcement already had a suspect or let's say persons of interest, and they couldn't decide which one to focus on and where to go for the evidence. And the psychics would often point them in the right direction in those circumstances. But ultimately, law enforcement had to build a case using physical evidence and, and other things. Otherwise, you know, I think Annette may be the only psychic who ended up in a court case, and it was not specifically um, had nothing to do with a crime per se. It actually had to do with a relationship. Yeah, well, the the, the government still they they going back to the government. They did studies on ESP, and and we obviously we just talked about remote viewing. Do you think they're still using psi in the government today to to you know well, either remote uh, viewers? You know, it's possible that somebody in the government is, you know, we, we talk about the government as this monolithic thing, and it's not. Um, it's likely that some people are consulting with the remote viewers. There's no official program or even unofficial program that Ed May or Joe McMonagall have been able to find. I know for 10 years after the closure of Stargate in 1995, uh, Ed likes to say he and Joe used to haunt the halls of the Pentagon and Congress with their old contacts trying to convince someone to start start up the programs again. But at the time, there were political hot potatoes and there were issues internally, uh, politically with the CIA and the Defense Department and so on. So they couldn't get anything going. That doesn't mean that, that and they were trying to do that post um, 2001, post 9-11. Uh, and they just could not get any traction at all. Uh, and so there still may be people within the Pentagon, within uh, other parts of the government that are using remote viewing or using remote viewers. But it doesn't seem likely that any of the guys from the old program or the people who knew anything about it, and Ed still has security clearance, they haven't been able to see any evidence of a program per se. That's interesting. Now, you, you were getting a little bit in your book, ESP Wars, East meets West. Can you talk about that? That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So ESP Wars, East and West, um, I'm the fourth, fourth author. I'm the kind of person who brought it all together. Um, we had contributions from a lot of different people, and <clears throat> I also added, added some additional information to it of my own. But it's it's a unique book. Uh, there are a few other books out there about the Stargate program. Even Joe McMonagall has written one about um, about Stargate himself. Uh, Lynn Buchanan, another person involved, Paul Smith, all those are all viewers that were involved. They wrote their own sides of the story. But this is really a history and successes and failures of the program uh, from start to finish with a heavy focus on that last 10 years and the last few years and what happened with why it shut down. Uh, although even more information has come to light since then. Uh, additionally, uh, Ed and Joe in the 1990s got to know their Russian counterparts, uh, General Alexei Savin, General Boris Ratnikov, um, a psychic named, um, I'm trying to remember his first name, a guy named Dadikov, uh, and there were some other folks as well. And they actually went over to the so to Russia to meet with them and met the viewers and, and all that. They had a pretty good um, program. So the book actually provides testimony from Savin and Ratnikov and others that go back into the history of the Russian psychic programs. And that in itself, I mean, I knew about stuff from 
the psychic discoveries behind the Iron Curtain book in the early 1970 and some of that stuff that we heard all that's, you know, about what the Russians were doing. And what's really interesting is how a lot of that was BS. So when I say it's, it was BS, there was a lot of propaganda going on back in the 70s, especially 60s and 70s. Uh, the Soviets really did put a lot of money, like billions of dollars, multiple laboratories in doing psychic research. But some of the directors directives were to create mind control, telepathic mind control and psychotronic or psychic generators and psychic weapons and all that stuff. And we we heard back in the late 60s, early 70s, they had a lot, a lot of success because some journalists and other people went over and they were hearing success and success which is what started the Stargate program. That's people got nervous in the U.S. But interestingly enough, um, Ratnikoff and Savin, both of whom were connected to the KGB at one point, um, were talking talk quite a bit about how a lot of that was a problem because they never got to the point that the Kremlin actually wanted with quality or, or weapons or generators, but they kept saying we're almost there. They kept telling the Kremlin, we've got some successes, we're almost there. Um, so there's a lot of real interesting backstory as to what really happened in the Soviet Union and also with Russia and the paranoia that the, that some of the folks in the Kremlin had and how some people in the KGB was ba were basically saying, yeah, we, we, you know, we got this black box that somebody gave us. It really does seem to work. We still have to test it. And as soon as the person from the Kremlin left or as soon as the report was done, they toss it in the storage closet because it didn't do anything. So... Fun stuff. Some international intrigue too. I think my favorite part of the of reading the book, uh, not reading, but kind of redoing some of the Russian stuff because I had to retranslate or, or take the English that was there from Russian and make it make sense, was some of Ratnikov's stories about the KGB. There's some really goofy stories, if you can believe this, goofy KGB stories. Um, they were seen more as they saw themselves more as law enforcement, like the FBI, than they did as the spies that we usually get outside. Uh, we hear and see in movies and other things out here. That's fascinating. Like, what, like, what, what uh, that, I, I don't even know where to go with that. Like, what, what were they doing? The KGB, like, were they, were they, were they, were they, because you, I've always looked at them more as like a mafia type, type yeah, deal. yeah. I mean, that's what I thought too. Um, but. You know, of course, if we're, if we're going to believe these guys, and Ed was pretty sure we can actually believe them, um, you know, every once in a while, um, I used to hear growing up and even in the 70s and 80s that all of our stories about the spy, the CIA overseas agents who are like field agents are a little bit crazy. And apparently that was the same with KGB agents. So they sent their crazy people out of the country because who would be nuts enough to go to another country, pretend to be somebody else and do that sort of thing? Uh, and spy. Yeah, so the folks who stayed in in country in in Russia, um, there was a lot of commentary, and I had heard this before um, from folks who had been to Russia, that the local police in many cities were corrupt. So if anybody had a problem, they called the KGB, not the police. I mean, think about that. From based on what we've heard in all these movies, the KGB were like the secret police, and they came and took you away. But apparently they were the ones you'd call for help. Which you know what? That reminds me of like some like old Italian neighborhoods here in the United States where like, you know, like people wouldn't rely on the police. They would rely on the mafia for protection. Well, yeah, I, I grew up in the New York area. And honestly, um, 
we, we had some people from the Colombo family that lived pretty close to us. <laughs> Not that anything happened, but you know, the cops used to, the county, the, the town cops used to kind of patrol the area quite a bit. It was pretty safe for the most part because the Colombo family was there. We weren't too worried. Yeah, I, I'm I'm from a little town in Pittsburgh. It's called um, at, at New Kensington. Like, and w we have a lot of old mob history here. Not to go off on a tangent, but but like on a side note. But like, it was kind of the same. Like back in the '70s and '80s when the mob ran this town, um, you know, uh, it was like it was like there was like it was it was like really you know like it was like a booming town. You know, like I I know that like one of the mob members met with. Uh, uh, that that Cuban uh, Fidel guy, Fidel Castro, like, you know, like they were running guns down to it, it, that, that mob history is interesting to say the least. It, it, yeah, it really yeah, yeah. I, I recommend a book called gangsters versus Nazis, which is about how um, a lot of the mob guys during the, during the pre-war and also during the war were actually taking out the Nazis or were kind of attacking the Nazis here in the United States. They're going after the Nazis. So um, Meyer Lansky was involved in that. I actually know Meyer Lansky III, so uh, I have a tenuous connection to, to at least the current generation who are not mobsters, but they know a lot. Um, and Meyer's actually really interested in the paranormal. So. That's cool. That's really cool. Like that's it's really cool. Now, speaking of which, you're 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 teaching a class on the skeptical approach to parapsychology through the Rhine Center. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so this was a course we've had on our list of courses to teach. I taught it a little over a year ago with a skeptic who is now like the senior investigator for the Center for, for Inquiry, the kind of successor to PSYCOP, the Committee for Scientific Investigations, of claims of the paranormal. And for the most part, he's, he's truly is a skeptic. Um, sometimes he leans a little bit too much to the, the disbeliever side, but uh, his name is Kenny Biddle. Um, one of the reasons I, I mean, we had been in contact before we taught the class the first time. Uh, and he, he's, especially when it comes to the ghost hunting stuff, um, he's the right kind of skeptic to be working with because he will, you know, there's so much emphasis on these TV shows of technology, of these the equipment that's being sold to them. And there's so much bogus equipment. I mean, most of it doesn't do what they claim to do. It does. And even when they have things that actually do things like reading EMF radiation, they're using them wrong most of the time or making or drawing conclusions or connections. Uh, they're not using them scientifically at all. So Kenny has taken apart like uh, ghost, ghost hunting stuff and come up with um, what the reality is of some of the stuff. Uh, so we actually talked the class together. We're teaching it again. And he teaches, he talks about critical thinking uh, specifically about, we, we get into the ghost hunting equipment, which I'm very, very, very skeptical of for its application. And the way ghost hunters, especially on TV, are using it, uh, what people claim, the people are selling it claim. Um, we, we talk about skepticism as a role within parapsychology and science in general, uh, because skepticism doesn't mean disbelief. This is the thing that, that the skeptics, with a, you know air quotes, the skeptics who wear like an S on their sh shirt like a super skeptic, they're really what my late colleague Marcello Truzzi called pseudo-skeptics. They're not really skeptical. They have made up their mind already. And if you've already made up your mind, you're not a skeptic. Yes. I mean, a skeptic, I can, a skeptic might never make up their mind. A true skeptic might look at the evidence and say, yeah, I can't decide. So they're skeptical. Um, one way or the other, by the way. So 
it's we're really trying to instill on people the fact that you need to be a skeptic whenever you get a case or look at and look at any person's um, experience when they tell you by asking questions to see whether you can come up with alternative explanations for it. Because in research and parapsychology and sci research, we're trying to study something and to study something that also looks or can look like other things like sensory information or false memory and all sorts of things. We have to eliminate all these other possibilities in order to get to the heart of what we're trying to understand. And that means being a little skeptical. Yeah, but that can go that can go a long way when you're when you're when you're trying to uncover the paranormal. Like I wanted to show you this thing. I don't know if you ever saw one of these. It's a uh, it's a PSB seven supposedly spirit box. It's basically just a radio. It sweeps yep. left and right. It sweeps back and forth. I haven't got this to give me one a ghost voice one time. Like, but I haven't went out places with it. But like, but what 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 makes me skeptical about it is like my ex girlfriend gave me this, and I but like. Yeah. So I didn't actually go out and buy this, but like I, you're supposed to talk into it and supposedly like a ghost will like give you his voice back or his or her voice. Well, back. I mean, supposedly, and, those things are supposed to, if they're sweeping through radio back and forth, they're supposed to stop when it hits a word that the ghost wants you to hear. That's what they're supposed to do. But most of the time I just hear radio. I don't, right. I don't, I've right. never heard it. Yeah. Because know, like, they, and I'm not being, there's just no way to, first of all, those devices, um, a lot of them claim to be doing random, randomly sweeping back and forth and randomly stopping. But the question is, are they truly random? I mean, we use random systems in parapsychological laboratory research. They have to be checked for randomness constantly to make sure they're still random. Um, it, it's really important that if we're looking at, is this a chance word? I mean, if you hear a single word it might mean something to you. It may have nothing to do with the question you asked. I've seen that happen with ghost hunters quite a bit, where you know they'll ask a question, they'll, it'll sweep back and forth. You'll you start hearing some words. Suddenly, here's a word. Oh my God, that's my grandfather's name. Well, that's not what you asked. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. You know, that, what is that? What does that have to do with anything? It has nothing to do. You're in a location that your grandfather never went to. Um, why in the? So it means something to you. You know, I've I've heard. Many characters named Jack. That was my grandfather's name. I hear that randomly. So does that mean my grandfather's trying to come through and tell me something? No, exactly. Yeah, I, I, it's so. I mean, like, what's crazy is like they they prop this up a lot on these like paranormal TV shows, and I think these paranormal TV shows are giving the paranormal a bad name. Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, there's a good side and a bad side to this. Um, I've talked about this in a number of my classes over the years. And we'll be talking about it actually a little bit in the skeptical approach to parapsychology as well. TV is its own thing. And the basic problem here is that people look at those shows and assume that that's fact. When in fact, no reality shows are fact. None of them portray reality. There is, while there is no script, there is direction. Um, I participate in a lot of TV shows, a lot of segments, even a couple of the reality shows. And what typically happens is somebody says to you, you know, you, you, they ask you the question or have you go into the room and, and sweep around and do whatever you're supposed to be doing. And then they say, okay, now I want you to come back in a little faster. We're going to have the camera facing you. I want you to look surprised. Or can you say what you just said, but say it shorter. Now say it longer. Can you emphasize this? In other words, 
they're asking you to redo something until they get the right take, which might fit the narrative that they're going to put together later on, which may not be what actually is happening. And even some of the times that I've used, what I have used equipment on occasion, because I'm, I'm told that I'm one of the first people to ever use an EMF meter on TV. They didn't, you know, I started talking about the context of using it, but they never included the entire statement I had. So it looked like I'm reacting to this as if this to a ghost. No, the reading was going up and somebody was experiencing a ghost, which means it's a correlation, not a causal thing. It's an interesting thing. We can't say that it was picking up a ghost at all. Um, but that's what happens in editing. That's what happens in the narrative they want to actually talk about. It's just a matter of television. And the biggest problem here is it's entertainment. It's not documentary. And even documentaries are biased. I mean, I, the, the very fact, I've talked to friends who are, are fans of Real Housewives, the various Real Housewives shows. If you don't think that, they, that they're being directed after they might have an argument to make that argument bigger and maybe even get into some hair pulling, you have no idea how TV works. Yeah, that, I would agree. I, I definitely agree. So when it comes to paranormal research, like what, I mean, do we have proof of the afterlife with ghosts? I mean, like, are ghosts real? I mean, like, I, I mean, like, I, I feel like they are, but I've never experienced one. So I, well, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I have to take that back. I had something in my room recently, my podcast room here, like, I felt like something was touching me, but that's for a different story. Like, you know, but like in your mind, like I mean, that could have been anything. I don't know. Like it, it definitely seemed like something was really, really touching me. And I wouldn't even told my audience about it if I didn't think it was, it was, it was happening. Like, but like, have you had that where your spirits have touched people? And like, um, do you see that often? Um, sometimes we get the, the touch, mostly it's visual or auditory, uh, sense of presence. You know, we have really good apparition cases going back over 140 years. Uh, but to answer your first question about proof of ghosts, um, there's not really proof in science. You know, people talk about proof uh, of something there. And then a new fact comes along and changes what you thought was prove, proven. Uh, you know, there's a lot of theory and, and we don't have a good model. But here's a question for you. Is there proof of consciousness? Yeah, because it's hard to it's hard to say. Right. It seems like our brains like a modem for consciousness, wherever well, consciousness right. comes from. Right. So so when we say is there proof of consciousness, we don't even have an agreed upon definition of consciousness in science. It, even within the field of neuroscience or psychology, you have different different definitions of what consciousness is. And until you can come to an agreed upon scientific definition and show that it's in the body, when we talk about consciousness after death, which is what a ghost is, that that's how we define it. How do we prove something if we can't prove it where we we absolutely can observe it? all the time. You know, it, it, you can't do that, but we do have a preponderance of evidence that there is a, there are patterns here that are clear and there are circumstances or cases in which people who did not know that the, there was a ghost or apparition were able to provide information, not only about that figure who they didn't know even existed at that location that matches other people who had experiences in the past but they can often pass along information from that apparition that they also could not possibly have known. Um, within the field of parapsychology, however, there is not agreement on evidence for the afterlife because others in the field who are more materialist consider some of our evidence to be more like um, evidence of 
really, really good ESP that's disguising itself in different ways. I don't agree with that. Personally, I think the evidence is very clear that, that some people survive the death of their bodies and can interact. So, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating. Like, I, 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 I don't think that it would be, I, I don't think that the ghost, especially an intelligent ghost, I mean, this is just me thinking about it. I don't think that would be like our minds, like an, like an egregore or something like that. I don't, I don't, I don't buy into that as much. Like, I just, I, 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 I don't know. I, it doesn't resonate with me for some reason. I think like it more like, like what you said, that it's, it's something that survived after death that is like, now reaching out and communicating. Now, a poltergeist, that's different, right? The poltergeist could be that, like a mental, like well, a thought form. Well, I mean, it's not a thought form. Uh, you know, thought form is a completely different animal altogether. Poltergeist phenomena, which is, it's really a label for, for a scenario in which there's physical activity, rarely ever anything other than physical activity. And that is tracked back to a living agent, to a living person's unconscious mind. So there's nothing else that goes outside. Unlike the movie Forbidden Planet, um, which is a to me is the, like the classic poltergeist case with a thought form. Uh, if you've never seen it, uh, I just watched it last night. In fact, um, it's an amazing movie, which where somebody's pumped up brain produces an a being, an invisible thing that kills a bunch of uh, visiting spacemen, uh, astro uh, folks from. It's kind of like the basis of Star Trek in some respect, or inspired Star Trek. Um, poltergeist phenomena is an expression of force, energy, whatever we're going to call it, uh, think of it as a telekinetic temper tantrum. And it can be very, very subtle because it could affect technology, which is we're seeing a lot more of that today. But it usually is because the agent themselves is undergoing some serious stress, has no other outlet for that stress. Although in some small percentage, it, it seems to be related to epileptic-like activity in the frontal lobes, the brain, temporal lobes. But there's, it's so not like an empty outside. So this is an interesting question. Could could the unconscious mind possibly produce computer problems? Like here's an example. Oh, yeah. like, so say like say like I'm stressed out, right? And I'm and I'm not even I'm sitting at my computer and I have a lot of work to get done. But then my computer starts acting up. Could that be a part of my my unconscious mind affecting that? And I don't know it. Is that is that kind of what you're? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And in fact. Um couple things about that. Uh, years ago, back in the in the 80s, um, when I was between going from my day job to a, a meeting for, uh, of the Psychical Research Society here in, in the Bay Area when it existed back then, I was stressed because I was pressured to, to get to the meeting and, produ and produce a calendar and some other stuff. And I was using an Apple IIc, if you could, some people might remember that, an Apple IIc computer, very, very, very simple computer with big five and a half, five and a quarter inch floppy disk and using a program. Um, it was a print program. I can't remember the name of the program off the top of my head. Broderbun produced it. And I, I, I was so stressed. I'm rushing to get this thing done. All of a sudden, the program starts doing things. It's cycling through the choices. It's doing all sorts of stuff. I rebooted the computer, rebooted the, the program, the whole bit, still doing all that. So I call Broderbun. And say, hey, here's what's going on. What I call their help desk, which was, by the way, here and still in Northern California. And I said, here's what's going on. The guy says, yeah, it can't do that. I said, what do you mean it can't do that? Here's what it's doing. He then says to me, how are you feeling right now besides frustrated about the program? I mean, how are you feeling right before you, you started doing this? And I told him I was really stressed out. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn off the computer. 
if you can take a walk around the block, forget your meeting, just come back, calm down, come back. Here's my direct line. Call me back, you know, try the computer again, but please just go ahead. So before I did that, I said, why are you telling me this? He said, because we happen to have noticed that when people are really stressed out or frustrated, their computers and the software starts screwing up. And he and I ended up having an hour and a half conversation. Um, this is something that people in my field had already noted. It's called human machine interaction. There've been studies in the late seventies and early eighties, some of which was government funded, uh, how people under stress and tension can affect their computers and chips inside the computers and other things. So it is something that we've all experienced. It's kind of a mini poltergeist event that happens. Of course, the alternative from the skeptical perspective is you're hitting the wrong keys or combination of keys. That's one possibility. And the other possibility is playing out just simply Windows, you know, when it comes down to it. Yeah. But uh, so go, go, getting back to ghosts, like would you say that you've had like intelligent interaction with, a, with an actual ghost or do you, do you think yes. you might have? Yeah, I, you know, I, I've had, sometimes it's through the witnesses, sometimes it's been through psychics or mediums. I've had my own experiences with a couple, a few apparitions as well. Um, never visual, I've had, you know, sensations, uh, smell, physical sensations, um, sense of presence, but and, and other things as well. And in fact, um, had a couple personal encounters after my dad died in the hospital in the ICU when they, they basically pulled the plug. It was um, just before five in the morning and myself, my one of my brothers, my mother went into the waiting room to wait for my other brother to come up to Peekskill from Brooklyn. Uh, we weren't going to leave until he showed up. And um, as we walked into the room, nobody else was around. The TV remote was like locked away and there was a TV in the waiting room. The TV turned itself on and switched channels to a sports channel. And my dad was a TV sports producer. So, oh my God, that kind of thing was really interesting. Um, I had a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, Martin Caden, who was a science and science fiction writer, die in 1997. A week and a half later, I had experienced what I felt was him in my car when I was driving alone and the smell of a really stinky cigar. Also, and 10 minutes after my experience in California, uh, a pilot buddy of his in, in uh, New Jersey flying alone in his Cessna experienced the exact same thing in the cockpit. And it turned out that 10 minutes after that, another friend of theirs, a pilot, because uh, Marty was an aviation expert down in Florida, had the same experience in his Cessna. And one of those guys, um, Bob, the person I first talked to, over the next two weeks, he talked to a lot of other friends of Cadence and found that 25 of us had this exact same experience when we were alone, either in a plane, uh, in the cockpit of a plane, or in a car. Same experience. Now, I don't know how else to explain that other than to say that he was bopping around saying goodbye. Yeah, I, I would, I would say so. And do, do you think that's common? Like, do you think like that, like after a soul, or I'll just say a soul, cause we don't know if it's, that's what it is. After a soul leaves this mortal coil, do you think there, some are able to um, interact with um, the living at some point, I mean, is that is that common? So um, the vast majority of, I mean, there are thousands of ghost experiences reported every year uh, or even more that were, were sure happen. And they typically happen to the people who knew the person who died. So it's friends, relatives, loved ones. And they're usually one-time experiences like my dad's experience 
Um, they happen usually within a couple of days of the person's death, often close to the, to, sometimes even at the moment of death, uh, and then nothing else after that. And we have very few where people are sticking around. We don't talk about them like leaving the mortal coil per se, because the ones that are seem to be apparitions or ghosts that stick around, that are around, as opposed to the people mediums talk to on the other side, whatever that means, the ones who are sticking around that we call ghosts haven't left the physical world. They're still here. They've left their body, certainly, but they're not, they haven't gone anywhere else. They haven't transitioned or whatever to an afterlife. Yeah. You know, one thing that one thing that's always made me a little bit skeptical about the afterlife is it seems like and I'd love to see if, if you, you have any answers on this. Like, it seems like the ghosts never tell us about the afterlife, what it's like there. And not the ghosts, because you just you just made that clear. I mean, when a medium talks to a spirit from the afterlife. OK, I'll put it that way. I'm sorry. I, I phrased that wrong because you just explained that. But like, yeah, yeah, when, like when a me you know what I'm trying to say? When a medium talks to a spirit from the afterlife. That spirit never says, oh, oh, it's like, you know, well, God lets us all do this at a certain time. Or no, that's we have true. the ability to roam around or it's, it's you know, there's waterfall. They don't say anything like that. You know, that, that, you know, that's, you know I, had, I had to tell you this. That's absolutely not true. A lot of mediums get a description of the afterlife. They have since the early days of spiritualism. Um, that's why it was named Summerland, actually, in the 19th century. Um, it's a pleasant place. I mean, first of, all, first of all, we usually hear from the mediums, for example, the Forever Family Foundation, we have certified mediums. We test them first. Uh, we do a lot of events with them. A lot of them are around helping people through grief. And they often tell us what the afterlife, you know, what they're told by, by spirit, the afterlife is like. One of the things we hear is that people confront themselves about everything good or bad they ever did in their lives, which could be hell or heaven, depending on who you are, of course. Um, that's not to say there's a place called heaven or hell. It's just that, you know, you can put yourself through hell if you did a lot of bad things and recognize suddenly that they were wrong um, in some way. Um, there is one basic, you know, a lot of them talk about, you know, getting to see their friends, their pets. Um, they can do whatever they want. There's rarely ever mention of God in these circumstances. It's other spirit. In some respects, I think it partly depends on the, the lens through which the medium is interpreting things. But that brings me to the other point, And that is, whatever the afterlife is like, it's the descriptions are being filtered through what the medium knows or can imagine. So I want you to think of it this way. <clears throat> imagine an alien planet where the beings there have no real physical form but they can approximate a physical form uh, to communicate with each other. They can kind of bring themselves together. And the, the environment itself allows them to imagine or to create whatever it is they want uh, or to imagine that. But there's a lot, but we, we're not getting information about what the colors are because the colors are different than any colors we've known on earth or the, the patterns of the air and the way it works is different than anything we, we know on earth. If you are trying to describe the color blue to a person who has never been sighted, how would you do that? How would you, other than to say it's blue and then for them to, to actually try to interpret that? So when it comes right down to it, with the mediums we've worked with and others that I've known over the years have said, is that they're getting imagery and other things, but they have to interpret it 
in words and ideas that we can understand, especially when they're talking about it. Otherwise, all they're going to say is, it's this really cool thing and I can't describe it because there are no words for it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That, that, wow. That makes sense. I didn't know. I honestly didn't know that. Like, I, I mean, like I, uh, maybe I'm having, I'm having the wrong kind of mediums on my show because I have psychics on my show every week, but like, I never asked them to tell me about the afterlife though. So that, that, well, yeah, that, I mean, you got, you got to ask. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. Uh, but you know, I've yeah. heard some really wild, I've heard wild things also on the other side of, of the side. There are some mediums, Chris, there are a lot of mediums who really don't know what they're interpreting. That's one problem. There's psychics who don't know what they're interpreting. Um, I've worked with psychics who you take them into a place where there are no spirits, but there is an, a huge imprint of an event that of events that happened there in the past. So for example, the Gettysburg battlefield has no apparent actual conscious spirits, but there is an imprint of all those of the battle that's there and people have witnessed that imprint over the years non-psychic people so a psychic who thinks anyone they see is a spirit is going to say oh there's thousands of ghosts and they're all still fighting the civil war when in fact all it is is a recording of a battle of the civil war and, and a lot of psychics that, don't know the difference at that point the that, same thing that, that, means, that, that makes me bring up a, a really hot topic right now that like, that, because, okay, here's what made me think of it. When you say it leaves an imprint, that makes me think, well, are we in some kind of simulated reality? And that's a hot topic right now. Simulation theory. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I certainly don't buy into that at all. Um, that's not a simulation. That's a recording. I mean, the, the movie, you know, if you want to take two, let's take two movies. All right. We have, um, Frankenstein, 1931, James Whale directed, Boris Karloff starred with Clive, you know, Colin Clive, I think it was. And uh, that movie, everybody from that movie's dead. There is there's probably nobody from the crew, and maybe one of the crew's kids are, are alive. Everybody's dead. I can watch that movie. That's a recording of people who have since died. When they made the movie, they were all alive. I can also watch one of my favorite movies, Army of Darkness. Every, pretty much I love that movie. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and everybody in that movie, probably, I don't know if everybody on the crew is still alive, but probably everybody's alive. Certainly Bruce Campbell is still alive. I can watch that movie. It's a recording. So it doesn't matter if the recording is of somebody who is currently alive or has passed away since that recording was made. The recording was made when people were alive. So that's not a simulation in the way that people are talking about the simulation theory, um, which, you know, it's, it's an old idea. There was, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was Confucius. I think it was Confucius who talked about um, us being a dream in the mind of a butterfly or something like that, you know, that we're not real uh, in that way. That's the first iteration that I remember reading about a, a so-called simulation theory. Well, there's also Plato's cave too, right? Like Plato, it's not that's oh, right. not really yeah. simulation theory, but Plato's talks about like you're in the cave, and if you could see outside the cave, you know, like you know, things might be different. Like, like maybe we if we saw outside this reality, maybe our, our reality would be, you know what I mean? Like, uh, well, yeah, I, no, I no, you're right. Yeah, I mean, we have very limited scope of what reality is based on our sensory input and technically our extrasensory inputs as well. Yeah, it's, it's like dogs and cats have seem like they can see spirits. Did you ever notice that? Like, I, I don't know if that's it's just no, a... I no more than living people. Let's put it that way. Um, okay, so it's not it's not a thing then. No, it's not. 
it's not inherent in all dogs and all cats. And just because a cat or dog stares off into space doesn't mean that they're actually seeing a ghost. <laughs> well, I'm glad you can clear this stuff up for me. I, mean, I, just, I, I get that for people. I get that for people all the time, and I can tell you right off the bat. I mean, um, my dog growing up sometimes would stare off into space. I mean, my cats, my the previous cats we had would do that. Hey, my brother stared off in space growing up. Does that mean he was seeing a ghost? That well, point. no, I just remember, I remember those old Art Bell shows where like he would have the ghost to ghost night where callers would call in and tell their ghost stories. And there would always be a caller who would say like, you know, I was sitting there and I heard something. I heard a noise. I, I thought I felt something. Then my dog started looking and my dog started barking at something. Then it moved. Yeah, I mean, and that, it backed up. That's, that's not to say that dogs don't occasionally have ghost experiences. Cats don't occasionally have, just like humans occasionally have ghost experiences. And it could be that because the fact is, I mean, you can be in a room with with 10 people uh, in a place where there's an actual apparition, a real ghost. And two people see the apparition. One of them hears the apparition's voice. A third person hears the voice but doesn't see the ghost. A fourth person feels a presence. A fifth person smells the perfume or cologne or body odor of that apparent ghost. The other five people don't experience anything. So does that mean that, you know, you can extrapolate and say, hey, all people see ghosts. It's not the case. Um, just like you could have could have had two dogs in that room also, one of whom reacts to the ghost. The other one is looking at looking around like, you know, what's going on? Why do you think the, the some of the dead or the ghosts or whatever you want to call them carry on their scent to the afterlife? Did we ever have you ever had any answers as to that? Or like well, sure. It's, that it's, just it's, First of all, you know, it's not a physical scent. It's just like you're not seeing a ghost with your eyes. Ghosts are not an optical phenomenon. They're not an auditory phenomenon. They're not an olfactory phenomenon. They are an extrasensory phenomenon. In other words, we're using our own ESP to perceive that, that apparition. And the reason, the very reason why that apparition has ghosts, has, uh, has clothing on, um, has other characteristics around them that we would pick up is because of that person, that consciousness, that spirit's mindset and picture or self-image. So for myself, for example, if I were to picture myself, my beard is, you know, just close my eyes and picture myself. I picture myself with a much darker beard, a little bit less weight. And uh, I know that when I die, if I come back as a ghost, I'm going to have more hair. Um, I have clothing on. It's incredibly rare for somebody to see a ghost without clothing in our culture, in, in most of the Western world. And that's because that ghost thinks of themselves as a person with clothing on. They think about how they sound, what their voice sounds like. They think about, you know, all of the, the thing that makes you you, including your smell, is information. And that information, think of it as being broadcast. And some people pick up the channel of vis that's visual. Some people pick up the auditory channel. Some people pick up the olfactory channel, connection of smell. Um, it's all processed in our perception. It's not going through our senses, which makes it extra sensory or non-sensory perception. That's fascinating. Um, one, one that I wanted to ask you about it, before we finish up is the shadow people. Like, I don't know if that's just lore or if that, I mean, like, I, I was trying to have out-of-body experiences. I was mm -hmm. using Hemisync Binaural Beats. I was Robert Monroe's. You know, I tell sure. this on my podcast all the time. And when I started to feel like I was going out of body, I started to see two shadow beings. 
I don't know if that was just a projection of myself or what I was thinking about, you know, um, but I've never actually saw a shadow being ever, you know, um, I heard a lot about them on our bell, you know, but I, you know, I've, I've yet to see one. There, There's tons of folklore around this whole, that whole thing. And um, a lot of times, especially if they with ghost hunters doing stuff in the dark with night vision, they see shadows and they claim it's a shadow figure. <clears throat> They're actually getting a shadow based on the infrared camera. Um, the the spotlight on the infrared camera is, is casting a shadow just like a flashlight would. So there's not even a, a thing there. It's just a regular shadow. Uh, in in There's two elements here that we have to always keep in mind. First of all, there is the idea that just because a figure looks dark, that it must be evil or bad. And in fact, I think that I'd be more worried about something that's so bright you can't look at it. Uh, you know, shadows feel cool to the, just in general. Whereas beings of light might blind you, and that's a bad thing. Um, that's one thing. The, the, what we seem to think, there's two issues with shadow people. One is people often report them as they're waking up uh, or going into another state of consciousness. And when you are in the process of waking up, your eyes are still adjusting to not only the light, but also there's maybe some stuff in your brain that's kind of, it's called the hypnagogic state. And you're getting imagery still from possibly a dream state and from unconscious stuff. And the shadow figure is kind of an archetype in general. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is that you may actually be seeing somebody who is not coming through clearly. Let's put it this way. Your perception of the ghost, if there is one there, is getting you. It's either really blurry or it's shadowy because you're not getting the full picture. You're not processing the information properly. So it's not that there is an actual shadow figure there, except in your own perception. Somebody else might actually see very clearly that this is a woman wearing a blue dress, but you're seeing a shadow figure. It's your so perception. you're just saying shadow figures can just be ghosts, right? They could certain. be ghosts, but you know, there's any number of tricks of the light, misperception. Uh, like I said, if you're seeing them on an infrared, a night shot camera. Uh, in the dark, the odds are that the spotlight on your night shot camera is casting a shadow. Well, I got one more question. Why? Yeah. Excuse me. Why do you think these these uh, these uh, these shadow beings are noticed in a lot of, to a lot of times in sleep paralysis? Like, I, I've oh. never been able to figure that one out. Like, well, I mean, sleep paralysis is a, a malfunction of something that goes on for normal people all the time, which is when you're dreaming, you're technically paralyzed. Because otherwise, you you know, there's been studies that have shown, clearly shown that if you're running in your dream, your neurons are firing, going to the muscles that would cause you to run in normal circumstances. So you're lucky that you're in sleep paralysis mode at that point. So it's really a malfunction of sleep of that that process. When we come out of the dream state, most people completely are out of the sleep paralysis mode. Every once in a while, you probably might have experienced an arm or a leg. Uh, usually it's arms that are just like dead and numb. And that's not always from circulation, by the way. That is because your your brain has not brought your arm out of sleep paralysis mode yet. If it happens to your torso instead of your arm or your leg, it feels like there's pressure and you can't feel anything here on your chest. It feels like something's sitting on your chest instead. But when you're coming into coming into that state, that's that coming out of sleep paralysis, that what's called sleep paralysis, and coming to consciousness, that's the hypnagogic state. And again, there's that element of dream imagery and unconscious imagery. And especially if you're freaked out because you're feeling something sitting on your chest, 
you're going to see something. And that tends to be something that your brain, your eyes can't focus on because you're in the dark or close to darkness. Yeah, that's fascinating. That like it, it makes me think like what designed us that we're, we're at that actually like something designed us so well that like we actually that it actually took into consideration that when we go to sleep at night, it's going to put us in a paralyzed state. So we don't. Well, have I mean, an that's, that's an evolutionary um thing that we is necessary for survival there actually is a there is a sleep disorder where people are not in paralysis at all and they end up like you know sometimes hurting their spouses or something else happens because they're actually oh you mean like sleepwalking and stuff like that yeah it's kind of like that but sleepwalking usually happens in a, in a different state than the dream state okay 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 like because the dream state they would be completely out of it they wouldn't know what was going on because they're actually in a dream state right 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 yeah sleepwalking That's usually fascinating. Happens, happens in deep in the deep state deepest state of sleep from what i understand that's fascinating. The, the last question I have for you is for uh, about um, what's the difference between telekinesis and psychokinesis? They seem like the same thing. Well, telekinesis technically is a subset of psychokinesis. Psychokinesis is, is action by the mind or movement by the mind. Um, so that's the, the broader team term. Psychokinesis refers to everything from um, moving an object, telekinesis, to psychic healing, to bending metal, um, to affecting computers. I mean, all that stuff is psychokinesis. Telekinesis is an older term, which refers to physical objects moving. Uh, and it's, it was made popular, of course, in science fiction and horror films in general. We tend not to use that term at all. Uh, we, just, we just call it PK. It's, you know, still mind over matter. So that's, that's where and you, you've, you've witnessed a lot of this, uh, people moving stuff oh, yeah. with their mind and psychic healing, right? Yeah, not so, you know, a little bit of psychic healing, but for the most part, it's been, been psychokinesis in, in various forms, metal bending, and um, and actually some what you would call telekinesis. Uh, Martin Caden, who I mentioned before, in that ghost experience I had with him, was able to move things under extremely well-controlled conditions. And I've worked with other people who have been able to do PK as well. I've done it myself a number of times. Um, wow, what was, it, what was it like? Or what did you feel like? You don't feel much. It's the weirdest thing in the world. It's almost like you're outside your body. You're not really outside your body. You're kind of looking at looking through your own eyes, seeing things happen, and you know you're doing it, but you don't really have a lot of emotion to it. I call it my Mr. Spock state, my Vulcan state of mine. That's cool. That's so cool. Um, but you said you haven't noticed too much psychic healing. Do you believe that psychic healing is a is a thing though? Like it can really well, yeah. happen? Yeah, I, mean, I just I'm not I've not been involved in that research at all. I mean, one form of psychic healing is the placebo effect. Yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah. a mind-body effect. Anything, you know, you can self-heal, so that's still psychic healing. If your mind affects matter, that's psychokinesis, even if it's the matter of your own body. And so our unconscious can affect us in a positive or negative way. We can heal ourselves apparently in some circumstances, we can harm ourselves unconsciously as well. And that's still psychokinesis. It's a form of psychic healing or psychic harm. Uh, it's actually, there's very little evidence that people can harm other people um, because even the process of psychic healing requires the person being healed to want to be healed. I mean, you can't heal somebody if they don't want to get healed because their own psychokinesis will prevent that from happening. 
That's 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 fascinating. That's that's that's, that's amazing. Like, um, well, I, I don't have any other questions. Oh, yeah, I just had one, one more about you. Were you're a chocolatier too? Like, I, I did, yeah. So, do you have your own brand of chocolate out, or like? I I did. I mean, for for quite some time, I was not doing a lot, but I was um, making my own chocolate, haunted by chocolate. For the most part, haunted by chocolate is my business where I do guided chocolate tastings. Although that was kind of put aside because of COVID, quite some time. I think I did my first in-person one a couple about a month ago a month and a half ago um i sometimes do them virtually but uh, and occasionally i do make truffles and and solid chocolates uh, I, I was making chocolates with little ghosts on them i was calling them ghost drops and selling them but that's that's going to be for my retirement down the road it's gonna that's awesome though i i love chocolate i'm a big fan I, you know like i uh i think it's one of the best things we have and it's one of uh, i mean it's it's just you know um, I've been right here in Pennsylvania. We have the Hershey place, you know what I mean? Like, right. the, but they turned that now into a big park and everything. It's like, well, I mean, I, it's, been, I, it's, it's been that way for years, for decades, actually. I mean, Hershey fortunately owns a couple of artisan chocolate companies, you know, they own guitar, excuse me, um, they own uh, Scharfenberger, which is a really, really good chocolate company, and they also own Dagoba in Oregon, which is an organic chocolate company. Uh, I can't say much that I would ever eat a regular Hershey bar at all. Um, it, it's not, to me, it's not good. <laughs> not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. But we have a couple, we have a couple here. I'm a, we have a lot, but I mean, like in my hometown where I'm, where I'm, where I'm currently living, we have like a couple of homemade chocolate places and those oh, are sure. always the best, you know, yes. like those are always the, I love those. Right. There's always the best, but um, yeah, I don't have any other. Oh, I should ask you about near death experiences. Like, we didn't get into that at all. Are you? Are you? Do you? Are you? A, you? You wrote a book on near death experiences. So you're no, near, you know, no, no. Um, I mean, near death has a near death experience in it, but that's the that's a novel. So um, I've included. You know, I've talked about near death experiences in a number of other books, but I haven't written a book about NDEs at all. What What do you feel about them? Did I lose you? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm here. Okay. I was just saying, how, what, do you, what do you feel about near-death experiences? Do you think they can they prove um, that the after that was some form of the afterlife, or what do you think? Like, uh, you know, again, we we talk about evidence, we don't talk about proof. Um, but um, there's a set, you know, first of all, there's a variations in near-death experiences, and there are certain what we what are called, uh, you know, constituents or steps or parts of a near-death experience, and they're not always the same for everybody. Um, you know, they do show that consciousness can at least separate or at least seemingly separate from the body. Uh, the thing about near-death experiences is we're bringing people back or they're coming back and they're not like dead, dead, dead. They're not like completely dead uh, because if they were, they wouldn't come back. So it truly is near death, uh, which, of course, gives gives the critics a lot to play with if they really want to. But there are certain pieces of certain experiences that are life transforming that are common to people that don't get explained by the, the neurological or the biological explanations that people have come up with that sometimes people are have an out-of-body experience during these experiences where um, they could not possibly have known or described what was going on in the operating theater, certainly not the operating theater next door uh, if that was happening. And that's happened a number of times. The personality changes or, I mean, you expect people who come back from any sort of life 
um, threatening situation to have a slight change in death, but we've seen significant changes in people's personalities as well. People leave their careers. They they sometimes marriages end. Sometimes marriages start. Um, is a really big change. Not everybody sees the tunnel, um, which people have often used as well. That's just the brain losing oxygen or some other explanation in different parts of the world, different cultures uh, in Japan and somewhat in China. I've talked to folks from those cultures where there's a bridge over a river instead of a tunnel. It's a light. It's a nice sunny day and there's a garden and there's an ancestor spirit or someone else there instead of the light at the end of the tunnel or um, a being related to your religion. I mean, it, there are variations individually as well. So there, there's common patterns here and real impact, and some people develop psychic abilities. So all of that shows that there's something connected to our consciousness that seems to be a next step, a next level for us. And bringing, bringing that person back, resuscitating them, pulls them back from that piece of whatever is going on. All evidence that's, supportive, that's, yeah, supportive of an afterlife. That's cool. Um, well, I th thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. I, I'm, I'm going to try to put this out tomorrow or the next day. Um, can you uh, tell everybody uh, where to find you or where to find your books? And thank you so much. This was great. Sure. So my books can be found on Amazon.com. That's the easiest place to find the books that are currently in print. There's a couple that are out of print right now. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter. If you follow me, it's at Prof Paranormal, P-R-O-F as in Professor Paranormal, or at Lloyd Auerbach. You can see the spelling of my name with one L right there. Um, on Facebook, I'm Lloyd.Auerbach.Author is my page. Uh, don't get any more, but you can definitely follow my author page. And I do an every other week Facebook Live, which I, I post on Facebook and on Twitter, um, next one will be uh, this coming Sunday, actually. It's at uh, 5.30 Pacific, 8.30 Eastern. It's a, a Facebook Live Q&A called Ask Professor Paranormal. So um, those are the best places to find me. And also you can get connect me to me through the Ryan Education Center. Uh, you can see the classes I've got coming up, the Skeptical Approach to Parapsychology. I have one called the Science of ESP. And finally, I have in June a class on developing your intuition. And that's Ryan. It's R-H-I-N-E edu.org or just go to rhine.org and click on the education link that's awesome well thank you uh uh 